0: My prayer this morning is that the stumbling block of the cross would not be removed in my preaching. But that it would be there in the center here. It is a stumbling block because it proclaims that you save sinners freely. You save them freely so that they may live free. And that is so devastating to human pride. So Father, I pray that the stumbling block of the cross would just sit smack in the middle of this sanctuary this morning. Shattering human pride everywhere it goes. And simultaneously setting the captives free. That's my prayer. Bring freedom. Bring joy. Bring love. As we dive deep into an understanding of free and sovereign grace. I pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. Every once in a while a book or a movie will will stir my soul in such a way that it leaves an indelible mark upon my life. That's how I think you know that it's a, a work of art rather than just mere entertainment. One of those movies for me was the 1981 film Chariots of Fire, which won the Academy Award for Best Picture in that year, as well as for Best Original Screenplay and Best Original Score for that iconic anthem during the opening sequence as the athletes are running down the beach at St. Andrews in Scotland. Chariots of Fire tells the story of two Young men, Eric Liddell, who was a devout Scottish Presbyterian, and Harold Abrahams, who was an English Jew, and it follows them through five years from 1919 leading up through their preparation and training for the 1924 Olympic Games in Paris. But as with all great works of art, this movie is about so much more than just athletic competition, it's about more than running, it's about freedom. Harold Abrahams lives his entire life with a chip on his shoulder. He is the victim, lifelong, of anti-Semitic racism and upper-class aristocratic prejudice. And because of this, he develops a deep sense of insecurity that creates within him an insatiable desire to prove that he's someone. To prove that he's something. To prove to everyone else and to himself that he's someone great. He's a slave to perfection, whether in academics or in athletics, and nothing is ever good enough, and so he spends much of the movie in the joyless pursuit of a standard of perfection that is always out out of his reach. He's miserable. On the other hand, Eric Liddell is the picture of freedom. Born in China to Scottish missionary parents, Liddell comes back to Scotland for his education and while in school he becomes famous as a rugby player. And because of his, his exceptional speed he takes up sprinting. But unlike Abrahams, Liddell is, is not a slave to perfection. He is secure in his identity in Christ and in his calling which God has placed upon his life. His plan is to compete in the 1924 Olympic Games and then to return to China. To spend the rest of his life preaching the gospel of Christ. While Abraham's sees sprinting as a way of proving his own self worth, Liddell sees it as a way of bringing glory to the God who made him fast. And therefore, win or lose, Liddell lives with a joy that Abraham's can never quite comprehend and frankly resents. And there's a scene near the middle of the film that captures the freedom with which. Liddell lives. He's explaining to his sister, he's in a bit of trouble, he's explaining to his sister Jenny why he inadvertently missed a church prayer meeting and he has no excuse other than he simply lost track of time while he was running through the heather on the Scottish hills and to Jenny this is a sure sign that Eric has given running and athletics and competition priority in his life over God But Eric explains to her that while he has every intention of returning with the China Inland Mission as a missionary, where he was born and where in 1945 he would die in a Japanese prison camp, he believes that God would have him to run at this time, at this stage in his life, in order to train for the 1924 Olympics. And and in a very famous line from the movie, Liddell tells Jenny in that thick Scottish accent, which I will not try to replicate, He looks her in the eye and he says, I believe that God made me for a purpose, but he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. Eric Liddell was a free man. He was not enslaved to the expectations of others. He wasn't a slave to their idea of who he should be or how he should act. He wasn't a slave to success, having to prove his own self-worth to himself or to others or to God. He was free in Christ, free, free to live his life and to run his race, feeling the pleasure of God upon him. He was known throughout Scotland as the flying Scotsman because he ran with a very unorthodox style. He ran with his back straight, straight up rather than leaning forward, his arms flailing and his head thrown back and mouth open. And it's the picture of someone who's running as if they're feeling the smile of God beaming down upon them like the rays of the sun. The Apostle Paul knew something of that. And he was fond of comparing the Christian life to a race And he wanted us to run that race like Eric Liddell ran, head back, arms flailing, mouth open for the sheer pleasure of running because God has made us fast. Paul described the Christian life as a race in a number of contexts. In Acts chapter 20, verse 24, he told the Ephesian elders, I don't consider my life of any account as dear to myself. If only I may finish the course And the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly to the gospel of the grace of God. Some years later as he is languishing in a Roman prison awaiting his execution. He wrote to Timothy and he said, I fought the good fight. I finished the course. I've kept the faith. The idea of this life as a race permeates his letter to the Galatians. In Galatians chapter 2 and verse 2 Paul expresses concern that because some within the church at Antioch were adding works of the law to the gospel of grace, that perhaps he had been running in this gospel ministry in vain. And in Galatians 5, 7, he writes to the Galatian church and he says, you were running well. Well, who hindered you from obeying the truth? So, the word of God to us this morning at First Baptist Church of Nixa is that Christ has died so that we may run well. Christ has died to set us free. That we may run this race like Eric Liddell, feeling God's pleasure in us as his beloved children, rather than like so many Christians who run this race like Harold Abraham's, driven in the joyless pursuit of perfection because we think that our acceptance before God and before others and in our own sight depends upon our winning the race. To run this race well, according to the Apostle Paul, 1st. Or Galatians 5 and verse 7 is to run in obedience to the truth. What truth? The truth that he outlines in Galatians 5.1. To run this race well is to run as free men in the power of the Holy Spirit. Back straight, head thrown back, arms flailing, mouth open, feeling the pleasure of God upon us as we take our steps day by day through this walk. That's what he wants for us this morning, and that's what we're going to pursue in this text. Paul begins chapter 5 with this glorious declaration. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Freedom. That's the goal of the saving work of Christ. That's why he died. He died to set the captives free. And this freedom is not some abstract philosophical concept. This freedom has a real basis. It rests upon a real foundation. It has real effects and it bears real fruit in the lives of the free ones. John Stott says of this verse, quote, Our former state is portrayed as slavery, Jesus Christ as a liberator, conversion as an act of emancipation, and the Christian life as a life of freedom. Where I want to begin this morning, I want to ask, from what were we freed? Because I'm not sure that we can enjoy the freedom for which Christ set us free unless we begin with the slavery from which he has liberated us. So what was the bondage? What were the chains that held us before Christ came? Well, Paul speaks of our pre-conversion slavery in four ways. He says, we were in bondage to sin. Romans 6, verses 6 and 7. He says, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be done away with. Listen, so that we would no longer be slaves of sin. Before we were crucified with Christ, we were slaves of sin. And Christ died so that we would be slaves of sin no longer. For he who has died is freed from sin, he says. Because of our union with Adam, we were born into this world enslaved to wickedness, enslaved to the corrupt desires of our own deceitful heart, so that we could not obey God from the heart. We, we might be able to render to Him some sort of outward, external, formal, joyless obedience, but we were completely unable to obey Him as a son obeys his father because we were slaves. Secondly, we were slaves of the law, Paul says. Just look back one chapter, Galatians 4, verses 4 through 7. When he says that when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law. That we might receive the adoption as sons. Verse 7, therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son. We needed to be redeemed from under the law because we were slaves Under the law. See, God placed all of humanity underneath commandments, underneath a law, promising blessing if we would obey in righteousness and promising a curse if we disobeyed in wickedness. And because we're enslaved to sin, we also came underneath the curse of the law because we could not and would not obey in righteousness. We could not and would not give to God the righteousness that He requires. So we're slaves of sin, we're slaves of the law, and because we're slaves of sin and slaves of the law, Paul says, thirdly, we're slaves of the curse. Look at Galatians 3 and verse 10. But as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. Because of our transgressions of God's law, because of the wickedness of our own heart, all of humanity lies underneath the curse of God's wrath, condemned to face God's judgment under the sentence of everlasting death. It's a miserable condition. Finally, Paul says we were in bondage to Satan. 2 Timothy 2.26, he says something really interesting that's caught my eye before. He's talking about two within the church that he had to put out and he says that he's praying that maybe God would grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. Listen to what he says. In order that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil having been held captive by him to do his will. Unbelievers are slaves of Satan held in bondage to do his will. What is this freedom From which, or for what is this bondage from which Christ has freed us? It's a bondage from sin, it's a bondage to the law, it's a bondage to the curse of God's wrath, it's a bondage to Satan. Beloved, we needed to be rescued, and the reason why this verse just explodes with joy is because the slavery was so miserable and awful. It's a burden, and he says, But Christ died to set us free from these things he's died to set us free from every form of bondage the freedom achieved by the redemption of christ is total and complete how did jesus set us free when paul says it was for freedom that christ has set us free how did he do it by his cross and by his spirit let's walk back through those four forms of bondage again at the cross, Jesus destroyed the power of Satan, ripping from his hands the chains with which he held us. Colossians two fourteen. Having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us which were hostile to us, he has taken it out of way, having nailed it to the cross. When he had disarmed the rulers and the authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. The cross was the defeat of Satan. John says that Jesus came, the Son of God, appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. By his cross, Jesus has freed us from the curse, shedding his blood as an atonement for our sins. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it's written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. At the cross, Jesus freed us from the law itself, completing As our representative, the obedience to the Father's will that we had not and could not and would not complete. Such that now by faith we receive from Jesus a perfect and spotless righteousness as his children. As if we had kept the law perfectly. And merited God's everlasting blessing. I would point you to Philippians three nine. What about Romans three twenty one? He says, "But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed—the righteousness of God that comes by faith, through or by faith in Jesus Christ to everyone who believes." And finally, by His Spirit, which He has sent into the hearts of all who believe, we are no longer slaves of sin, but now we are slaves of righteousness. Galatians four seven, Romans six seventeen. My point as we begin this message is this. The freedom and the redemption is perfect. If you are a believer in Christ, there is nothing to which you are still enslaved. Sin, the law, the curse, the devil. Christ died, rose again, and sent his spirit to free you from all those things. He's left nothing unfinished. He's done all things well. And so Paul gives us in Galatians 5.1 our emancipation proclamation, as it were. You're free. Free from sin, free from the law, free from the curse, free from Satan's power. You are free. You are free to walk in love, in joy, in hope, in righteousness. You are free. You are free to run and to feel God's pleasure, even if you miss the church prayer meeting. And the jennies of the world get down on you. You're free. In the second half of Galatians 5:1, Paul issues a call to stand fast in that freedom for which Christ has already set us free. So he continues on he says, It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Alright, so if the first half of Galatians 5 is our emancipation proclamation... Then the second half is Paul's urging us to put down the yoke of slavery and to walk off the plantation because the slave master no longer has any legal claim over us. It's a call to recognize the freedom which is already ours in Christ and to walk in it, to experience it, to run with it. We don't have to keep slaving away in the cotton fields of a do-more, try-harder religion. We are being called to leave the fields of slavery and to walk into the Father's house and to sit down at His banquet table and to enjoy the feast of His grace. That's what Paul's doing in the second half of Galatians 5.1. This is a call to lay aside the crushing yoke of the law with its constant demands and the constant threat of the whip if we disobey. This yoke is precisely what Jesus came to remove from our shoulders. Some of you walk through this life as if the yoke were still on there. Metaphorically speaking and some of you physically speaking. Are like hunched over under the weight of demands. Under the weight of the. You are exhausted Christians. And those two words should not belong together. Be free. From that burden. Stand firm in the freedom which Christ has purchased for you. Jesus came to take the yoke of slavery from your shoulders. It was for this purpose that he was born under the law. It was for this purpose that he lived under the law. That he died under the law. Living under the yoke of the law. Is like being commanded to plow an enormous field. With the yoke upon your shoulder as you try in vain to dig deep furrows with the plow dragging along behind you. What the Son of God did was to come out of the Father's house, take the yoke off of your shoulders, place it upon his own, and proceed to plow the entire field perfectly. And then having accomplished the work that he set out to do under the law, he then puts down the yoke... He walks up to us and he says, well, it's done. It is finished. The work is complete. Come on now, let's let's go into my father's house and let's, let's share a meal. Such is the gospel of Christ. So I want you to imagine what a great dishonor it would be to the son to refuse to come. Imagine what a great dishonor it would be to his perfect work to then Pick up the yoke that he has laid down, put it upon your shoulders, and begin to replow the field that he's already plowed. What on earth would cause someone to exchange the free offer of grace for endless slave labor? Paul puts his finger on it at points throughout Galatians. He says it's human pride. That's why the cross is a stumbling block. Human pride causes us to resist the idea that someone's going to do everything for me. It's the kind of pride which says, I can plow the field on my own. I don't need the law. I'm sorry, I don't need help. I can plow the field of the law on my own. It's like, thanks, thanks so much, Jesus, for getting me started, for, for breaking the ground for me, but now... I just won't really feel good about myself and the Father won't feel good about me if I don't, if I don't do some of the work myself. And so I'm just going to kind of go over the furrows again. And that's what many of you are doing in your Christian life. You're trying to replow the ground that Christ has already plowed in the law when he wants you to take the yoke off your shoulders, lay it aside, and go into the banquet. Such are those who try to justify themselves by works of the law. Trying to add to the finished work of Christ their own efforts and their own obedience and their own righteousness. And I want you to hear me. There's some strong language in Galatians chapter 5 about such people. Let's not soften it. So you imagine the scenario again. The law says take up the yoke and plow the field. The son comes out of the father's house. He takes the yoke upon his own shoulders and he plows the field for us. He comes and by his resurrection, he lays the plow down and he invites us to just walk up into the house with him, enjoying the father's mercies. And we say, no, thank you. I'm going to put the yoke back upon my shoulders and I'm going to keep going. I'm going to keep plowing. I'm going to do some of this myself. I want you to hear what the son will say to those on the last day. Something like this. Have it your way. But know this those who wear the yoke are slaves. And slaves will never enter my father's house, will never eat at my father's table, and will never share in my father's inheritance. It's my paraphrase of verses 2 through 4. So be warned. This is a free offer, ridiculously free. No ifs, no ands, no buts, no breaks, nothing. But there are dire consequences for refusing the offer. In verses 2 through 4, we find what is the imminent threat to our freedom in Christ. And it should come as no surprise to us, it's been lurking in the shadows from the beginning of the book. The threat is circumcision, or more broadly, legalism. And in these verses, Paul names legalism for what it is. Listen to me it is a soul enslaving, soul killing sin. Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. And I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. You have been severed from Christ, you who are seeking to be justified by law. You have fallen from grace. Strong words. The issue in Galatia was circumcision, right? The Judaizers had come into the church, retracing Paul's steps. After Paul had departed, they began telling the Gentile believers that unless they were circumcised, they could not be saved. They needed to add works of the law to faith in Christ in order to be accepted in the sight of God. And in response, Paul writes to the Galatian churches and he tells them why this is not true, verse 3, and warns them of what will result if they submit. Verses 2 and 4. The reason why you can't add circumcision or anything else to faith as the means of your justification before God is that you simply cannot pick and choose out of the law what you're going to add to faith and, and give to God as the reason by which he should accept you in his sight. You either receive a righteousness from God that is apart from the law Or you try to achieve a righteousness through the law, but it must be, Paul says, through the whole law. That's your choice. You can receive righteousness by faith apart from the law, or you can achieve righteousness through the law, but the standard of achievement is perfection. A standard to which we are woefully unable to attain. It's basically the same point that Paul made back in Galatians 3.10 when he said, you know, everyone who seeks justification through the law is under a curse because it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. If you choose the way of law, see, here's what you think you're doing, some of you. You, you think that you say faith and church attendance. Faith and Bible study, faith and baptism, faith and something else is I'm going to package them together. And when I reach the gates of heaven and God says, why should I let you in? You're going to say, hey, look, I believed and, and whatever it was. The problem is, Paul says, that option's not open to you. Either it's faith receiving a righteousness that is apart from the law or it's works achieving a righteousness through the law, through perfect obedience. Those are the two options, Paul says, and there is no third way, which is why adding circumcision, baptism, anything to faith as the means by which I'm accepted to God's side is just futility. I like the way Timothy George put it. He said this, For the Galatians then to accept circumcision and all that it implied was for them to throw away the precious gift of freedom and step back onto the unceasing treadmill of self-justification. If in urging circumcision on the Galatians, the Judaizing teachers had claimed, Paul has not explained to you the full demands of the gospel. For his part, Paul replied, they have not explained to you the full demands of the law. The result of submitting to circumcision, the result of adding works to faith in Christ is devastating. Verse 2 says, Christ will be of no benefit to you. If you add works to faith, package them together, and try to present them before God as the means by which he should receive you into his presence, you lose Christ and all of his benefits. You lose justification. You lose adoption. You lose redemption. You lose everything. And verse 4 says, you've been severed, that is, cut off from Christ And you have fallen from grace because you're seeking justification by law. And there is no hope in being justified by the law because we are unable to keep it from a heart that is corrupt and wicked and enslaved. So just let let the full weight of these verses sit down upon us this morning. So many people want to try to sneak out a back door when it says fallen from grace or severed from Christ and make it mean something that it doesn't mean. Let it rest. Here's what it's saying, and I want you to receive this into your own heart right now. You with me? If you turn back, I don't care how long you've been in this church. I don't know. I don't care how long you've been professing faith in Christ. If you turn back from the law free grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone gospel, you make manifest that you are none of his and you never were. That you are not the recipient of his saving grace and you never were. That you have not been born again and you never were. That you did not receive his spirit, not now and not ever. It is not that those were born again and they became unborn again. That they were justified and became unjustified. That they received the spirit and then the spirit departed. It's that they were faking it without even knowing. Fooled everyone including themselves. Don't let that be you. Do not turn away from the gospel because to turn away from the gospel is to fall off the cliff, to fall from grace, to be severed from Christ. The point of these verses is that legalism is the great and imminent threat to our freedom in Christ. Are we talking about circumcision here? No, not really. That, That was the manifestation of legalism in Galatia. But legalism is anything that seeks to add works of law to faith in Christ as the means of our acceptance before God. Legalism is anything that you add to faith as a requirement for obtaining justification. So test yourself. Legalism is anything that says, unless I do, then I won't be saved. Unless I do, then God won't accept me. And whatever you add in there, unless it be nothing, is legalism. Anything added to faith, packaged together, presented to God. It can be circumcision as it was in Galatia. It can be table fellowship as it was in Antioch. It can be dietary laws, keeping kosher, keeping festivals, keeping Sabbath days as it was in Colossae. It can be asceticism, forbidding marriage and forbidding the eating of certain kinds of food as it was in Ephesus. Whatever form it takes, however, legalism is deadly to the soul. I want to read you a great quote from John Stott. Listen carefully. He says, It is impossible to receive Christ, thereby acknowledging that you cannot save yourself, and then receive circumcision, thereby acknowledging that you can. You have to choose between a religion of law and a religion of grace. Between Christ and circumcision, you cannot add circumcision or anything else for that matter to Christ as necessary to salvation because Christ is sufficient for salvation in himself. If you add anything to Christ, you lose Christ. For salvation is by Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone. So I want to ask, is this only a first century problem? All of those heresies that I just mentioned in Galatia, Antioch, Colossae, and Ephesus, those were all in the first century in the apostolic world. Do we deal with any of these? You bet we do. I mentioned three. Uh, Roman Catholicism, I think, is guilty of the Galatian heresy. Because while one's initial justification is by grace alone, administered through baptism while they're an infant, they'll they'll trumpet that and they'll say, listen, it's grace because the infant can't do anything. They have a final justification that is based on faithful obedience to the teachings of the church, including faithful adherence to the sacraments, including the sacrament of penance, which is nothing short of making up and trying to atone for my own sins. It's legalism. The modern-day Church of Christ makes water baptism what circumcision was in Galatia. That is in addition to faith as the means by which one is born again and cleansed of sin. I want to be very, very clear. We're Baptists here. Like we're for baptism. Baptism is a good thing, It's it's a gift from Christ for the assurance of our faith and to make visible the promises of the gospel. But we baptize believers, we baptize saved people. We don't baptize in order to save. You see the difference? So, that a baptized believer ought to go to God and, and, and bring before them nothing but faith in Christ. Whereas I would accuse the Church of Christ of coming before God and saying, faith and baptism packaged together, offered as the means of my acceptance. I'll never forget the, the day in 2006 when Ashley and I stumbled upon the front porch of a man in the Church of Christ who through the course of our conversation insisted that we were not saved because we had not been baptized for the remission of sins. It's Legalism. As I mentioned last week, I think the altar call is a modern modern day form of legalism by which some, not all, some add walking the aisle as a means by which one, quotes, seals the deal. I'm not sure that a more legalistic phrase has ever fallen upon my ears than, Jesus went to the cross for you, surely you can walk down this carpeted aisle for him. They've made the altar call today what circumcision was in Galatia, that thing you do in order for God to accept you. You know, at the end of our services, we have a time of response and worship, but that, that, the word that, that forms the umbrella over that time is freedom. Never hear me say that you've got to come up here in order to be saved. Because it's not true. And hear me, if you come up here in order to be saved, you will not be saved. Now you can come up here and we'd be glad to share the gospel with you, but your faith better be in Christ and not in the coming forward. Altar call has become the evangelical sacrament, that thing you do in addition to faith to be justified before God. As evidenced by the fact that so many people, maybe some of you, doubt your salvation because you never did that. And everybody talks about their salvation as the day I went forward rather than the day I believed in Christ. You say, Well, I never went forward. Maybe I'm not saved. Legalism pervades. You've been severed from Christ, you've fallen from grace. I don't care if you've come forward. I'm for that. As long as at the gates of judgment, when God says with all of your sins, why should I let you into heaven? You don't say because I came forward. You say because Christ died for my sin and rose again for my justification. The gospel says if you want to be right with God, if you want to be free in Christ, you must do nothing but believe that Christ has done everything. I'm going to jump over verses 5 through 6 now. It's my prerogative. I send the bulletin in a little earlier before I have my sermon finished. So I'm going to jump over verses 5 through 6. We'll come back and hit those at the very end. Following on the heels of the threat to freedom, I want us to look at the enemies of freedom. Okay, Who is it that wants to take the yoke of slavery and put it upon our shoulders? Who is it that wants to rob us of the joy of running the race? Well, Paul Paul points to them in verses 7 through through 12. He says, You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion did not come from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. I have confidence in you and the Lord that you will adopt no other view, but the one who is disturbing you will bear his judgment, whoever he is. But I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision... Why am I still persecuted? Then the stumbling block of the cross has been abolished. I wish that those who are troubling you would even mutilate themselves. I want to point out four characteristics of enemies of the gospel. Just very quickly. We're not going to dwell long on these verses. Number one, they're not from God. Paul says in verse 8, This persuasion did not come from him who calls you. In fact, in Galatians 1.6, Paul said, That God is the one who calls us into grace. He calls us into the grace of Christ. Not into some kind of works-based, merit-oriented justification by law. So any teaching that seeks to put the yoke of, of burden upon our shoulders and commands us to carry it or else Jesus won't accept us, they're not from God. And their teaching does not come from heaven. They're from somewhere else and their teaching arises from another point of origin. Number two. They are persuasive. If, if they won no converts, Paul would have no reason to write. But they are a seductive crew. Their false doctrine spreads like a ta- contagion, or as Paul says, like a little leaven that leavens the whole lump of dough, verse 9. Therefore, we must recognize them, we must resist them. To borrow from Paul in Galatians 4, we must cast out the bondwoman and her son. or else they will spread their soul-killing doctrine to all. Number three, they're destined for judgment, verse 10. God will judge the enemies of his gospel who destroy his church, or who seek to destroy his church. But don't skip over the first half. Paul is confident that they will come underneath God's judgment, but Paul is confident that God will preserve those who are truly his. And number four, they persecute the true heralds of the gospel just as ishmael persecuted isaac galatians 4:29 so the slaves of the law persecute the sons of freedom and verse 11 makes clear why he uses a really interesting word it says the cross is a stumbling block in greek it's skandalon it's a scandal The scandal of the cross. Why is the cross scandalous? Why does it evoke such anger in those who don't understand it? Why does it bring forth persecution from the slaves of the law? Well, it's scandalous because it says that God justifies the ungodly, undeserving sinners solely through the the merits of Christ. It says that salvation is a one-way rescue of God's sovereign grace it says that man can do nothing in order to affect his own salvation he can't take a single step towards God without God's regenerating spirit coming first and that is so injurious to human pride we are born into this world wanting to climb the ladder into heaven and the cross says that ladder is of no use it leads nowhere I'm going to come to you in the tomb of your heart and I'm going to call you to life Surely, our natural heart says, surely we must do something to receive this salvation, to make ourselves acceptable. Circumcision, law keeping, penance, baptism, something. But the cross says no. Jesus has done everything, and unless you're willing to do nothing, you can't have anything. That's why it's scandalous. The Judaizers were perhaps telling the Galatians that Paul himself required circumcision. You know what? Paul preaches circumcision. Maybe you've just misunderstood him. Maybe you wasn't here long enough to get to that part. Whatever it was, he's in agreement with us. And, and, And Paul says, that's a slanderous lie. And he points to his own persecution as proof. Because the cross and circumcision, the cross... And any work of the law are mutually exclusive. Paul was persecuted precisely for preaching the word of the cross. If he preached law-keeping righteousness through circumcision or, or dietary codes or festival observances or anything else, he would not be under constant attack from the minions of Satan. The constant attack that he endured throughout his entire ministry. And the charge that Paul preaches circumcision got him a little hot under the collar. And that's where verse 12 comes from, which is as explicit as it sounds. I mean, it is. In effect, Paul says, if they are so convinced that circumcision, that is a little cut, makes them acceptable or helps to make them acceptable in the sight of God, Imagine what castration would do. That's the point of verse 12. What can we learn from that? Carefully speaking, I would say that to mess with the gospel is a very serious offense. Finally, then, what does it look like to experience freedom in Christ? Paul explains in verses 5 through 6, he says, For we, through the Spirit, by faith, are waiting for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything but faith working through love. Next week, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to deal with the question. We're just going to camp on verses 13 through 15. We're going to draw in verses 6 and 7 and put them together. And we're going to camp on the question, how do free people live? Specifically, I want to answer this question. Does a law-free gospel lead then to lawlessness? If we tell people, you don't have to do anything in order to receive this salvation, does that create a church of people who do anything that they want? We'll deal with that next week. I don't want to deal with it this week because I don't want to put any brakes on, on what Paul's saying here. I don't want to see, yes, grace, but. Because there is no but. And there is no exception and there is no addendum. I'll give you a little teaser for next week. The answer, does a law-free gospel lead to lawlessness? The answer is no. A law-free gospel ushers in a life of spirit-wrought righteousness and love. So we'll deal with the question of sanctification. But while we close this morning, I want to ask this question. What does this experience of freedom in Christ look like? I'll give you two things. Number one, it looks like waiting, not working. Freedom is not striving, it's not laboring, it's not slaving away to attain righteousness and thereby God's acceptance. Freedom is not picking back up the yoke of of the law which Christ has put down. It is not putting the yoke upon my shoulders, the hand to the plow, and beginning to work the field that Jesus has already finished. Freedom does not, listen to me, freedom does not look like an exhausted, over-programmed church full of joyless people who go through the motions. Freedom is believing. Freedom is resting. Freedom is enjoying the fruits of Christ's labor. Freedom is leaving the yoke of the law where it lays, walking hand in hand with Christ up the steps into the Father's house and sitting down at the banquet hall. Freedom is coming to the well week after week to to drink deeply from the flow of grace. Freedom is waiting for that glorious day when God will clothe us in a righteousness that we did not earn and bring us into a glory that we do not deserve. Freedom is waiting. It is not working. He says, for, for we through the Spirit by faith are waiting for the hope of righteousness. And secondly, from verse 6, I would tell you that freedom is doing what God created us and redeemed us to do, namely to love Him and to love one another. Now watch this. Loving God and loving others is what Jesus said was the law, right? All the law is summarized in these two commandments. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Paul says the same thing in verse 14. The whole law is fulfilled in one word in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So what gives? I thought we were free from the law, and now Paul says that in our freedom we keep the law. Doesn't seem to make sense to me. Well, you are free from the law in order to fulfill the law, but with one massive life-altering difference between then and now. Then you were trying to fulfill the law, you were trying to love God, you were trying to love others in the power of the flesh, and your flesh was corrupt and wicked. And you couldn't do it, and you didn't want to do it, and you hated doing it. And frankly, you failed at it. But then came the cross, where our corrupt and wicked flesh died. And then came the resurrection where we were raised with Christ to walk in newness of life. And then came the Spirit who dwells within me and, and gives me the will and the power to love God and to love others. And now as a freeborn son and not as a slave of the law, I, I who have freely received of the Father's mercy and don't have to work in order to earn His grace, I find myself loving God naturally and I find myself loving you without having to try. And as you walk by faith in the power of the Holy Spirit, love happens. It just results. And you don't know where it comes from, unless Paul tells you it comes by faith in the power of the Holy Spirit. It's a fruit of the Spirit. Chapter 5, verse 22, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. You don't do those things. In fact, if you have to try to produce love, joy, peace, patience, and kindness, it's a work of the flesh and not a fruit of the Spirit. It's a work of law. And it's under the curse. It's the same law before and after, but with one massive difference. Then you were a slave and now you're free. Then you were old and now you're new. Then you were corrupt and dying and now you've been reborn and the Spirit of God dwells in you. And whereas for you running, trying to keep the law, trying to love God, and trying to love other people was exhausting, it was sweat, it was labor, it was aching, it was cramping, it was quitting, now as you run empowered by the Holy Spirit, you have strength that you never before knew. Isaiah 40 and verse 31, yet those who wait, not those who work, those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength, they will mount up with wings like eagles, they will run and not get tired, they will walk and not grow weary. And so now you are free to run for the sheer joy of it. God saved you for a purpose and he made you fast. And when you run, you can feel his pleasure. But many of us don't know what it feels like to feel God's pleasure. We don't know God's pleasure and the race is not a joy. Instead, you you feel tired and weary and exhausted and fearful and labored, you feel like you're in last place in the race of life. And so it's for you that I close with this story. There, there's an event in, in Eric Liddell's life. It's portrayed in Chariots of Fire and it's attested in, in, in history. It actually happened. When he was at a track meet in Glasgow and he was running the 440, they used to run 440 yards uh, twice around a 220 track in those days. And after the first lap, at the halfway point of the race, Liddell was a long ways off the lead. It didn't look like the famous runner would come anywhere close to winning. And one spectator said to the man who sat next to him that Liddell would be hard-pressed to win this race. And the, the one who had seen Liddell run before was unconcerned, and he merely said, Nah, his head's not back yet. Sure enough... Liddell soon threw his head back and with mouth wide open and arms flailing he shot past his opponents and he run the, won the race. So I would say to you, do not despair First Baptist Nixa that you will never run to feel God's pleasure. That talking of joy is something that will always be just out of your grasp an experience that you don't know experientially. Our head's not back yet at First Baptist Nixa. The day will come when the When the Spirit will blow and with our head thrown back and our mouth wide open and our arms flailing, we will run with joy the race that has been set before us with the smile of God beaming down upon us. And so I close just with this exhortation, do not grow weary, do not grow tired, do not give up, stand firm, pursuing, digging deep into this gospel of grace, rest in the cross of Christ, walk by faith in the power of the Holy Spirit and pursue joy with everything that you've got and joy will come. God made me for a purpose and he made me fast and when I run, I feel his pleasure and so will you let's pray our god and our father i pray for that this is a work of your spirit that is that is how desperately in need of grace we are we cannot free ourselves from the yoke of slavery and so I, I pray whether it be for the first time that you raise someone from death to life and you bring them into the salvation which Christ has secured for them or whether, whether you come and by the power of your spirit you help take the yoke off someone's shoulders who's been carrying it along and trudging along even though they don't have to. I pray that joy and, and, and peace and freedom would reign this morning by your spirit. Come and do a work in our midst. Help us to run so as to feel your pleasure. To throw our head back and just run with abandon. Knowing that we can't lose. Because we're in Christ and he's already won. Father, bring bring freedom. Whether that be the freedom of conversion in the lives of some or the freedom of sanctification, of of stepping into the joy of a of an experience of freedom in the lives of others. I pray for that. Do that. We plead with you in the name of Christ. Let's stand together, and this is our time where we respond to the message in worship and in prayer. And if there's one or two or some of you here who have never called out to Christ and asked Him to free you, you've never asked Him to forgive you, I would exhort you to do that now.